I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome back to another episode of For Your Ears Only. This is episode 008. We have surpassed James Bond himself. My name is Jake and joined with me always is my cohort, Jack. Jack Eason, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Good, Jack. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, let me just say this is the Optimism Vaccine spin-off podcast where we cover all things James Bond. My golden retriever has just entered the room and now she's just left the room. Okay, very good. We're going to have a nice... Calm, quiet, soothing episode. Uh, we release these on a regular basis, but uh, Jack, for you and I, it's been a while since we've actually recorded one because we had a few banked up. But uh, I'd say uh, we're back in action. We're better than ever. How you doing, man? That's, that's pretty good. This is this is interesting. This is a movie that I have no recollection. I don't think I've ever seen this before. You know, normally I saw snippets here and there over the years, but I, yeah. I don't think I ever saw any of this movie before. Excellent, yeah. I'm I'm doing great. I'm engaged now, which is interesting. Uh, oh so, yeah, how you so how you doing, Jake? Win. Oh, I'm doing fine, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm excited, as you can tell. Uh, engaged to be married to my lovely bride to be. Um, oh and, yeah, that's uh, right. Well, hopefully that ends better than the last movie. I know. Yeah, the last engagement we saw did not end well. They did not even make it to the honeymoon phase. No, don't invite any Germans. All right. Well, we're back, and you know who else is back? Goddamn, Sean Connery is back. That's who's back. If you're taking a, a film break, swearing never again, with uh, You Only Live Twice being his last film, Connery has returned to Diamonds Are Forever. The year is 1971. We are now in the gaudy, gaudy, garish 70s. Uh, and the film is directed by Guy Hamilton, who last directed Goldfinger. Jack, you mentioned that uh, you've never seen or don't recall ever seeing Di- uh, Diamonds Are Forever before. That's that's accurate. That's that's right. Yep, yep. This is this is this is virgin territory for me, and there Excellent. aren't that many of those in this series. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, full disclosure: um, this is going to be a very difficult episode for me to maintain my objectivity. Um, and and I, I will say up front that I love all of the Bond movies, but uh, most people, when they do a run through of the first time of the series, kind of like what uh, you're doing and or what we're exploring here. When they get to Diamonds Are Forever, they think of it as the first bad one. Now, uh, Jack, what are your initial thoughts on Diamonds Are Forever? It's the first bad one, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, like I said, I'm going to have trouble maintaining objectivity here because I fucking love this movie. I It is a big, dumb, daffy mess, and I can't get enough of it. This is... This is where you separate the Bond, uh, the Bond fanatics and the casual Bond watchers. Because people, you can watch and enjoy your James Bond every now and then, or you can snort it all up like a giant line of cocaine that every crew member probably went on before they rolled the cameras. But uh, yeah, Diamonds Are Forever. This is a, this is a very interesting one. Uh, you said it's the first bad one. Uh, you know, I, I, I won't say it. It's not a perfect film, but um, <laughs> God, God damn it, <laughs> no, I love no, it the same. It's, it's not the most perfect film, that's for sure. I don't know, like, I didn't hate it, but it's, it is, 
there's an adjustment phase here for sure. There's yeah. some corrections being made. Uh, I don't know. I always like my Bond with a little, like a little bit of camp is fine, but I'm not sure. Like I'm not sure how you temper it best between you know your straightforward storytelling, your action, your gadgetry, and that kind of camp underpinning. I'm not sure the balance is right there for me on this one. Yeah. I wasn't bored. I was confused at certain points, but not that's bored. Fair. So, well, that's, well, I'll take confusion over boredom any day. And that's, so, yeah. and that's how the 12 steps to loving Diamonds Are Forever works. Because <laughs> step number one is confusion. You know, you're thrown into this, uh, the world of Las Vegas. It's an alien and foreign land, much like it is to our intrepid hero, James Bond. You don't know what's going on. You're, you feel like you're being assaulted from all sides. And then after 120 minutes, cruelly leaves you hanging uh and uh, and so yeah that's the first phase but uh, i i guarantee after 12 watches of diamonds are forever it will become your new favorite james bond film we will get there <laughs> um oh maybe, maybe so uh I, I don't know it's gonna take me a while to get another 11 11 viewings of this <laughs> yeah <laughs> i could do it easily but uh let's get right into it um we open with uh it's supposed to be uh, a sort of re- well. I- I'm sorry. Let me back up. Let's get a little context. So, um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service by Bond standards in 1969, underperformed at the box office. Lazenby essentially called it quits after the one. He wasn't uh, really in the mood for a seven-picture deal, and so he abandoned the series. This caused the producers to scramble to cover. For James Bond, so they wooed back Sean Connery with a then record-breaking $1.25 million paycheck. That is insane. It is an insane amount of money at the time. Uh, But can we also just briefly, I just want to bring up, can we also just briefly imagine that they considered both Adam West and Burt Reynolds to play James Bond in Sean Connery's absence. Oh, yeah. Can we can we imagine Adam West James Bond? Because I feel like this movie would work better with him. <laughs> I, well, I mean, yeah. I, feel, I mean, this is basically Batman the movie without a cape and cowl. Pretty, pretty much. In the 1966 Batman. And Burt Reynolds, like Gator being J, like it would just, that's a crazy casting. And both of them apparently turned it down because they kind of were like, um, we're American. That would be weird, which seems straightforward, but it was British producers coming for them. So, um, yeah. yeah, I just, I just, I'm just trying to imagine a world where, where Adam West showed up and, yeah, I don't know, got spy repellent or something. <laughs> All right, I now have a cat in my lap if you hear any uh, weird noises. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they all turned it down. Uh, Connery came back $1.25 million. That is, uh, the equivalent of $7 million today. Uh, then unheard of, uh, if you recall, the budget for Dr. No was a million dollars. Uh, and then in You Only Live Twice, the budget for the Volcano Lair was a million dollars. Now the budget for a Bond is over a million dollars. So these films are really quite evolving and expanding in very interesting ways. Uh, they also got, and I'm jumping ahead here a bit, but they also got back just to, just to reassure audiences, I think they got Shirley Bassey to do the, uh, the theme, Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, and, uh, I mentioned the film was directed by Guy Hamilton, who directed Goldfinger, one of the largest successes in the film series to that point. So really this is, uh, the producers trying, they, they're, they're thinking here, if we have all the elements in place, we'll have another hit on our hands. We'll be back on track to making... More great, good, classic Bond movies. And, uh, yeah, Diamonds Are Forever is the end result. Um, uh, yeah, let's get into it. So, (laughs) 
the film opens basically on the tail end of uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, Bond is out for revenge because Blofeld has gunned down his bride. Uh, but the film never really mentions Tracy by name. Um, what do you ever know? Yeah, 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 there's there's a, a brief allusion to a diamond ring from Money Penny that Bond looks a little saddened to hear. But uh, yeah, no no basic reference yeah, to it, Tracy. It it pretty much yeah it pretty much shirks off the the last film. Now there were some reasons for that because I know um, the actress who played Ilsa Bunt, the woman who actually killed Tracy Bunt, last yeah. movie, she. Yeah, she she died of a heart attack just days yeah. after the premiere. So I mean, she was going to come back in the next Bond movie. They were going to continue the storyline. She died unfortunately, so they they resigned her role, which I think was a respectful thing to do. She was great in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It would be tricky to replace her. So yeah, I mean, I kind of understand they 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 couldn't quite pick up exactly where they left off, but they kind of almost shirked it off a little too early. Like, I mean, it's so the, the pre-credit sequence basically Bond tracks down Blofeld and kills him. Yes. And, that's, and then, so, and then so the credits start. So, so we believe. Spoiler alert. It's, he doesn't actually kill Blofeld yeah. before the credits. But yeah, and it's kind of like it's just he kills Blofeld in like five minutes flat mm-hmm. and then and then we're and then new film starts. And the, I mean, the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service is like the dramatic crescendo of the entire James Bond franchise to a certain degree. I mean, it's like Bond and his wife and his settling down and all of these things and then cruelly ripped away from him on the day and he's crying at his, his fancy car yeah. and, you know, re- assuring, a, assuring a corpse that she'll be okay. He can't even process it. It's this incredible moment of vulnerability that honestly will almost never be afforded to James Bond ever again. And then the next movie just starts with him throwing a man through a wall. Uh, <laughs> and it's so, the opening shot of our film. That's the upshot, and then the worst ADR. I don't even know why they bothered to do it. Where the guy go? Where he says, "Where's Blofeld?" And he says, "Cairo," but his mouth, his mouth doesn't, move. doesn't move. Not that it even says something that isn't Cairo. He doesn't say a word, but they felt the need to say that to transition to him throwing a man across the roulette table. I feel like you didn't need him to say anything. That cut to him beating up someone else would let you know the first guy gave up the information. Well, but so so be it. Who am I? I didn't make any films. Well, so. well, don't forget the man who he throws into the roulette table. That guy's playing blackjack and when the dealer thro- rolls down the cards, he says hit me. Cut to Bond punching him right in the face. <laughs> it's it's a pretty good and I like the way his fez falls onto the roulette wheel and spins. That is that is a nice touch. Yes. It is a pretty it's a pretty good scene. Then you have the more questionable one where he corners a woman and rips off her bikini top and strangles her yeah. with it. He says, yeah, I, "There's the, something I'd like for you to get off your chest." Get off your chest. Yeah, I'm not sure that's uh, that one's not aged very gracefully in the canon of of James Bond and his awkward relationship with women. No, I don't but, know what uh, you're talking about. But it is. It's a minor. Yeah, it's it's a minor scene. Um, but yeah, it kind of. I will probably get to that a little bit later on as we discuss uh, maybe the treatment of Plenty O'Toole. But yeah, it's it's a really like quick snap sequence. Like it's it's definitely it's the most loaded pre-credit sequence yet. So much happens in a Bond beats up a bunch of guys, yeah. tracks down Blofeld. Blofeld's getting plastic surgery uh, to change his appearance. We have our third actor playing Bond or playing both Blofeld. Our third actor who plays what? him as an actual physical person rather than just an arm petting a cat. I guess there's a f- at least four yeah. if we include so the other guy, um, Professor Dent's yeah, arm, yeah. That's right, yes, Professor Dent of Doctor No, who came back to play Blofeld because yeah. you know, why recycle him? And they recycled Blofeld in this movie because he he was Henderson and you only lived twice. Yeah, only lived twice. Japan and like, Contact. 
he was an ally of Bond, but then he died, and then they just brought him back as Blofeld yeah. for some reason. So he, anyhow, here's the, the thing, f- yeah, Bo- yeah, Blofeld's getting plastic surgery, but he's also uh, ordering his henchmen to get plastic surgery to look like him, and that involves uh, presumably hours of soaking in these mud baths, which I don't understand the purpose for, and I've seen this film <laughs> two dozen times. Okay, so so yeah, well, I mean, later on we do our death count. I, I go through all the deaths in the movie. It's a, it's a time-honored tradition. I still don't understand how the dude dies. There's one scene, the, it's Blofeld has a henchman under the water, or under the clay, and he pops up with a gun to kill Bond as Bond approaches him. Wait, which, Bond, first of all, yeah, Bond why does he have a gun in the mud bath with him? He knew it was him. coming. That was, that's, he knew Bond was coming, and he just had a gun to hand and the gun still works even though it's full of clay uh, and he he sits up he's he's underneath the clay lying beneath the level of the clay submerged and he sits up to point his gun and bond pulls a lever to dunk more clay on him and the man is pushed underneath the clay by the by the force of what's being dropped on him and then he dies somewhere in the interim even though he was previously <laughs> underneath the clay anyway it doesn't he, i've i've counted him he's dead for, I mean, for purposes of the movie, he's dead. I don't know what he died from. I, I think he probably died of embarrassment because just the, the <laughs> sheer emo- pain of pain, emotion, weight of, emotional weight of just being doused in so much heavy clay. You just you don't want to live anymore. You just he just okay. releases himself from his body. I, yeah, I like to believe that maybe like when he got knocked under, he like knocked the gun and he managed to shoot himself in the abs, abdomen or something, and then yeah. ended up just dying. I don't like. I've got to make something up. Or maybe anyway, uh, none of this. Is- maybe the force of the clay mm-hmm. broke his neck. I mean, that happened to uh, Buster Keaton once when he had a, a water tower filled with it's water. It's true, but in Buster Keaton, in Buster Keaton's defense, he didn't know he'd broken his neck until years later. Oh, that's true. Yeah, he finished the movie. <laughs> Where's yeah. this dude? This this wuss just up and died within a matter of seconds. Yeah. But in any case, so we, the pre-credit sequence has all of this stuff. He kills Bond, kills like four people in the pre-credit sequence, which is a lot, honestly. It's almost half the body count of the movie, including presumably killing Blofeld. Although later on, it turns out there's another Blofeld. But it, yeah, he does all this stuff, and then the end credits or the starting credits roll, and it's just like it's an incredibly jarring. Off the like, if you were to run Honor Majesty's Secret Service, you know, run up and then just put this movie on next, it's such a jarring change of pace. <laughs> There's no connectivity, like the connecting tissue between them. It's like Connery being back, you know, and yeah. Mason B being replaced. That's not the big, like, that's not what will disconnect you from. It's just the sheer breaking. You get whiplash moving between these. Oh, I don't, I don't think Connery's helping matters because if, when you're listening to us describe all these sequences of Connery bouncing from location to location, he's taking out henchmen, he's drowning guys in some weird mud, he's killing Blofeld. You're probably sitting at home listening to this or driving to work thinking, wow, this must be the, you know, the Sean Connery of From Russia With Love is back and he's better than ever. He's got a new recharged sensibility and he's, he is, he's the best. Uh, uh, dear listener, you could not be more wrong. Connery, <laughs> his performance could be best described as uh, DGAF, doesn't give a fuck. He goes through every scene just so flat and uninterested that his lack of enthusiasm actually makes the film more entertaining for me. And as a perfect example, in the scene right before he kills Blofeld, Blofeld has two henchmen come out. One of them points a gun at Bond and tells Bond to put his hands in the air. The way Sean Connery raises his hands just listlessly in the air with a complete lack of any sort of <laughs> affection or anything sells the movie for me. 
I, I have, and I have a question about that too because he has there's two henchmen. The first henchman comes up to search Bond, yeah, and he gets his hand caught in a trap, like a mouse trap type device. Bond had a mouse Bond's trap in his coat. Thing, yeah, for some like because that was a thing. Like if anyone searches you for a gun, their hand will get caught, oh. and, and he dies from that for some reason. So I don't poison mouse trap. Who knows? Probably. The other henchman has a machine gun. Is standing away from Bond, pointing his gun at Bond. So that's the whole point so the other guy can search him when the other guy has his hand trapped falls over the dude with the machine gun runs at James Bond <laughs> which is not how having a gun works yeah. um, and so Bond quickly dispatches him of course and, and eventually throws a bunch of knives at him um, which is the guy's own fault for running at him and getting his machine gun knocked away but Bond didn't even bother using the machine gun at the end but yeah it's it, you're right it, it, James Bond looks Sean, like Sean Connery looks old here he looks and old I don't know and if, bored he do, and I don't I don't know if it's like it's difficult to tell because obviously you know the 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 macho physique has changed a lot since the early 70s to now oh it's but it's amazing like, what nine years can do to a man in the 70s yeah but so, so so yeah Sean Connery is he's about he's 41 years old in this movie so he's a little old to be an action dude but like it's not absolutely out, you know, completely out of place, but it feels like Bond, and I mean the production here. It feels like Sean Connery has been just living up being Sean Connery for several years, mm-hmm. and then just stumbled back in the door to be the super dapper spy. And it's it doesn't really trade that well. I mean, his hairpiece is more noticeable here than it was in Live and Let Die. Or you want to oh. live twice? <laughs> Boy, is it um, ever? <laughs> it's, yeah, um, it's, it's just he just looks like like someone's dad who just sort of wandered in and is kind of like kind of amused by the entire setup sort of like oh really is this what we're doing i mean literally it is when there comes a point where you pay someone uh, you know you pay someone a lot of money and they go like they're paying me a lot of money i need to bring my a game there comes no. a point beyond that where it's like <laughs> you are paying me so much money you're an idiot and i don't have to do anything and i think this is very much the point sean connery has reached is this now this is something i hadn't thought of until just now is this the birth of egomaniacal actors where they realize that their name alone can open a movie and they are just insufferable to work with and they're still being paid, uh, you know, truckloads of cash. Is this I, where I it all know. begins? I, this was certainly a notable entry in the, in the field. I'm sure there were prima donnas and so on prior to this. Although, yeah. you know, through the through the classic studio model, you know, the actors were under contract, which made them somewhat easier to manage mm-hmm. although arguably i guess when they were when they were big stars and were under contract they could pretty much do whatever they wanted to because i mean yeah i don't, I don't know I, they, they were always difficult actors but I, yeah i think this like like this and and uh, uh what's her name um in cleopatra uh, god her name's completely escaped me Blake, who got like a million dollars to play cleopatra blanking um, myself yeah i'm blanking completely uh richard burton's wife Jesus, I've turned into that guy. It's like she's the incredibly successful woman who's married to a guy. Um, but anyhow, uh, yeah, you know, I feel like they were they, they were there before, you know, getting ridiculous money. But yeah, this this is certainly I feel like maybe the like Orson or or Marlon Brando went on to get like money for ha- like for just showing up. But I feel like. It was never that much money in these movies. Like, Sean Connery's bringing a, a new level mm-hmm. of sort of like, 
uh, you know, you need me more than I need you. That's right. Uh, so let's let's run through this thing and let's just get it out of the way. Yeah, it's worth noting he donated his entire salary to a, a Scottish library foundation, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but yeah, he set up... Um, let me see. He set up the Scottish International Education there Trust, it is. which was which was basically yeah get, brought arts funding to Scottish artists so they didn't have to seek funding abroad, and um, was and he he even he starred in one of the first films was The Offense, which was Sidney Lumet directed and Sean Connery played the late, lead role in it. So yeah, yeah, he pretty much just gave away the money that he earned to just set up something for himself because he yeah. didn't even need the money. Uh, but basically, this is a big win for Sean Connery. I think it's pretty much a big F you to the, the producers that I know Connery was not too fond of at the time. Excellent. All right. Well, we're about twenty minutes in, and I don't. We we barely just got through the uh, the pre title <laughs> opening. The opening credits, credits begin. <laughs> yeah. So Bond throws Blofeld in some mud. He turns up the heat. Blofeld presumably drowns, burns to death. Bond says, "See you in hell." He looks over, sees Blofeld's cat wearing a diamond uh, necklace uh, or collar, necklace collar, collar. Yeah, necklace collar, <laughs> and then uh, Shirley Bassey starts playing. Now, for as outlandish as uh, Diamonds Are Forever is, uh, I really like this song. It's very uh, very laid back. It's no Goldfinger, but it's uh, certainly one of my more underrated favorites in the entire series. What did you think of the song? I think it's pretty good. Um, I mean, Bassey sells it for sure. That's mm-hmm. a, big, a big win. Uh, I do think it's funny that there were some... Uh, some issues with the song because I felt that the uh, penis metaphor element was a little bit oversold in the lyrics. Uh, that maybe they weren't. Maybe she wasn't talking about diamonds. Um. But of course, pen- penises aren't forever, so she must have been talking about diamonds. Yeah, touch it, stroke so, it, and dress yeah. it. That's and I mean, it's said. yeah, and it's 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 James Bond, so sex jokes would certainly not be the kind of thing that we'd be dealing with at all. Well, so if I mean, if you think this song is risque, just wait till you get to the lyrics of uh, the man with the golden gun. That is something. <laughs> uh, guns aren't phallic. That's cool. Yeah. This, this will end well. This is all just a big penis fantasy we're watching. Anyways, all right. Uh, the. Film begins proper. I forget what the... Okay, Bond me is meeting with M. M assures Bond that Blofeld's dead. We have to move on to this diamond smuggling unit. That's Bond's mission for the movie. Uh, And through a very uh, ornate and complex series of uh, exposition and flashbacks and side plots, we get to see how uh, there's these diamonds being smuggled out of mines in uh i forget the country i did not write it down no it's it's somewhere well i would say i believe was set in south africa south africa um somewhere yeah i don't know if they're more specific than that i really this piece struck me because it's basically like a bunch of rich white dudes in a like leather upholstered mahogany office space talking about their diamond mining and how important it is to, you know, maintain honesty and stuff. And then they just cut to these poor Africans, like, hacking crap out of a wall in horrible conditions. And we're supposed to, like, feel bad that they might be stealing stuff from the rich white dudes back in in England. Mm -hmm. There's there's a wonderful uh, insight into the kind of odd, stiff upper lip colonialist mindset that underpins, to be honest, a lot of the James Bond franchises. Like, um... I don't really, I don't really support what you guys are doing here. But uh, admittedly, this movie is not really about diamonds. I mean, the diamonds pretty much disappear at this point. It's about diamond smuggling. 
I'm, I'm trying to remember, like, there, you, there's almost no sign of any diamonds throughout the movie. Uh, well, they show up once here and there, you know, but, like, really, there's... They're kind of a side note. There's, you will learn nothing about diamonds watching this movie. They are no f- they are a bit of a they are a bit of a MacGuffin, and um, it's true. But yeah, the diamonds are they're you know they're just they're they're just kind of there. Sometimes they pop up every now and then, just as a, a reminder. Oh, this is you're watching Diamonds Are Forever. Stay tuned to watch James Bond snooze through this scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it turns into like it's yeah, it's about diamonds, and it's like it's actually it's about a, a satellite with a laser. And it's like, oh, lasers, that's more what James Bond is about generally. That's right. So, um, yeah, it writes itself. It course corrects as it goes. Yeah, so, uh, and then during all this diamond smuggling, we meet uh, two of my favorite henchmen in the entire series. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Mr. Kid and Mr. Wind. Oh, my God. These are like two sweaty dads talking to themselves. <laughs> well, well, speaking of sweaty dads, Mr. Wint is Bruce Glover, and he's Crispin Glover's father. So if you're yes, wondering about the, the creepiness and oddness of Crispin Glover, it can all be traced back to here. It's uh, true. Um, and here's an interesting thing I, I read is that originally that role was going to go to Paul Williams, the musician who is probably for film stuff is maybe best known for Phantom, Phantom Paradise, yeah. which he's great in. Yeah. Um, and Muppets. he, he would have been he kind of a diminutive little guy. I feel like it would have made he would have made a lot of sense in the role. But these two guys are OK, like they're gay. They're a gay couple. That's right. Basically. That's right. Um, and that, that, of course, means they're evil, twisted, sick men. <laughs> Um, that's pretty no. much hard coded in there. All right, well, uh, that's I don't I don't find that at all. I think they just happen to be gay. They're not evil. No, because no, they're, they're gay. weird, sweaty men who don't fit in their suits, and and clearly that's why they're attracted to each other. They're deranged, <laughs> sick perverts, and they just crack dad jokes at each other to oh. no one in particular. It's the weirdest thing to me because they're literally they are like pantomime villains, but with American accents. Like the panto is like a British tradition. And it's full of, like, men in ill-fitting costumes cracking terrible jokes. But I've never heard that done with an American accent before. And they're, like, they're, they're almost like the Marx Brothers. Like, they, they, it, like who are they talking to? But the, they don't have the quality of jokes. Like, the Marx Brothers, these amazing wordplay. These guys just have these, like, terrible, terrible, belabored puns. And they just sort of just speak them... And, like, the other person doesn't even acknowledge them. They're just walking around. Like, just, do they talk to each other? Who acknowledges who's saying what? And they're, and they're deadly assassins. Well, about that. Feel- yeah, so they're deadly assassins, but they uh, come up. They could not come up with harder ways to kill people. Um, the they're fir- very, they're very long-winded in how they work. Yes, <laughs> yeah. The first, the first scene we see of them, they're meeting a guy in the middle of a desert to. Uh, pick up uh, some, uh, I don't know, diamonds or something for him. They've killed the contact he's supposed to be meeting and taken his place, and the guy that they're meeting is a dentist, and he's like, okay, so he's the dentist bringing them the diamonds. I'm piecing it back together <laughs> retroactively. Right, yes, uh, that's right, because they smuggle them out in the guy's mouths, and the dentist extracts them. In case our listeners who have not seen this are wondering, like, why is a dentist specifically showing up? Well, that's why it well, is it's yeah. in the film. Well, th- and also because so that they can distract him, Mr. Kid fakes a toothache so the dentist can look in his mouth while Mr. Wynn <laughs> sneaks up behind him and drops a scorpion down his shirt and kills him. <laughs> As you do, I don't. I don't understand why a scorpion. Because it's not like you need to make it look like an accident. It's they nature's blow the finest next... killer, Mister Kid. 
Indeed, I don't even think that's true, honestly. But um, <laughs> that's what so, they say. so be it. That's what they say. And I mean, honestly, I wouldn't want like in a way they can say whatever they want. Because if I met these people in real life, let alone them being murderers, I just want to get away from them because they're just really just <laughs> terrible conversationalists. I just want to leave. I just yeah. like okay, you dudes, do you do you? Yeah, so they kill the dentist, and then the guy who's supposed to pick up the diamonds from the dentist, they give him a fake case filled with a, that has a bomb inside of it that blows up his helicopter, and these two guys idly walk off into the sunset with the diamonds, and they start holding hands. That's, that's yeah. Mr. Kid and Mr. That, White. That's, that's, that's our, I mean, I think that's, that's, is that James Bond's, the, the Bond series first gay couple? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's much more likely to have a lesbian pairing, honestly, in the male fantasy world. So, um, yeah, I think this is the first. Well, we do uh, we do meet Bambi and Thumper later. Yes, we do. <laughs> this film is oh, progressive Jesus. on all fronts. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, uh, we'll get to them. This we'll is the best them. Bond film ever made. All right. <laughs> Uh, so Bond is sent to investigate where these diamonds are going to, uh, through, uh, he basically ascertains that he must go to, um, uh, up in the Netherlands, I forget, Amsterdam, Amsterdam, that's right, he's got to go to Amsterdam, he's posing as a diamond smuggler named Peter Franks, where he's meeting, uh, Tiffany Case, who is, uh, some sort of con, this is very vague, I'm sorry, (laughs) This is plots are plots are uh, secondary to you know Bond films. Just so you know, Bond meets Tiffany Case disguised as Peter Franks, uh, and then where he finds out uh, where the diamonds are going, and then uh, let, let, let's just I want to talk briefly about the original meeting with Tiffany Case. Yes. and Tiffany Case. And she's is our her Bond name. girl. Yeah, a, yeah, and she's the Bond girl, our main Bond girl, played by uh, what Jill St. John. That's right. And, uh, yeah, and she's the first American Bond girl, so that's another first. It's worth noting, actually, about this movie, it's mostly, it's almost entirely, he visits the Netherlands very briefly. There's a scene at the start in South Africa, but it's actually not shot in South Africa, it's shot in California, I believe. Uh, the film is almost entirely based in Las Vegas, in California. So it's mm. almost entirely American shot, with American, both Bond girls are American. This is very much the, like... Play it safe, bring it to an American audience, you know, kind of, that's where the money, you know, the American box office is the biggest, safest box office, let's hit mm-hmm. hard. Yeah. I feel it's very, it's very apparent in this film, that they're very, they're leaning heavily into the American interests. But anyway, he meets uh, Tiffany Case for the first time, and she offers him a drink, and he takes a drink, and then she just whisks the glass away to go, oh, let me get you some ice, and whisks it into an entirely separate room, and then painfully extracts a fingerprint from it, and then has an entire wardrobe with a ginormous machine, which sole purpose is to put up two ginormous images side by side of fingerprints and confirm if they're the same fingerprint. Yeah. Literally an entire wardrobe is occupied with this technology. You feed in the <laughs> fingerprint and it has a match of the one fingerprint already, which is Peter Frank's like, uh, fingerprint, to confirm that he is indeed Finger Frank and Bond is wearing removable fingerprints, it turns out, so he's fooled her. Again. She's taken, his, you know, she's taken his glass for like... A minute to go get glass, which or to go get ice to put in it, which honestly I think is pretty much. I'm not a spy, and even I'd be like, uh, some 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 chicanery is afoot. Uh, and then comes back in and gives him back his glass, and of course Bond knows what's happened, etc. And, and there's mistrust and such. Again, I don't see a problem with any of this, and uh, we should <laughs> we we'd be remiss to if we didn't mention that when Bond first enters uh, her apartment, we see Jill or uh, Tiffany Case walking away. She's wearing a blonde wig. 
then she comes back out with the alcohol, and she's got a brunette, a dark-haired wig on. And Bond no- does a double take and notices, "Weren't you a blonde when I come in? I came in." And then uh, when she takes the glass to do the whole fingerprint thing and and get the eyes, she comes out in her natural red hair. Um, and then she asks Bond if he minds the hair change, and Bond says the immortal line, uh, so long as the collars match the cuffs, I approve. Which is weird, because <laughs> honestly, are you really... Like, I mean, let's boil that one down to where it comes from. If you're really getting in bed with someone, like, is that literally going to be a, an end a point? A game you're changer, like, oh, yeah. Apparently you've dyed some of the hair on your body, either top or bottom, and I'm out. I will not have anything to do with this. Because uh, that's a really, that's a weird, that's a weird hill to die on, to be honest. And I feel like Bond wouldn't really care. I think he's just no, making no. weird banter at this point. But yeah, so she changes her, and apparently she changed her hair color, because in I believe in the book she was a blonde. I believe, so when she changes her hair color, that's kind of a reference as, weren't you a blonde when I came in? It's a reference, she was a blonde in the book, but now she isn't. She's actually a redhead. But as you point out, she also wore another wig in the middle. She, because why not? Because she owns a lot of wigs. Yeah, you Stop know. Stop asking questions. Some people <laughs> just enjoy that's wigs. That's right. This is the this is the only traits that uh, Tiffany Case has is her wigs. Um, her wig and her weird nasally accent, uh, which my my wife pointed out because she's like, "Why do all women in seventies movies sound like that?" And I actually oh don't know, but she's like, "There's this weird kind of nasally accent that actresses have in seventies American cinema." <laughs> And it's not regional, as far as I can tell, but they all have it. It's kind of kind of whiny, high pitched. Oh yeah. She'll say John has it a lot, like the women in the the like the the American New Wave. They had it. I'm just I'm curious. Like I actually don't know. That's something. If anyone knows, uh, let me know. Is this like is it a theatrical thing? Is it a an acting thing? I like it's not a received pronunciation. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's a weird thing. But anyhow, moving on. That's how she talks. She, that, her accent is by no means the most annoying thing in this film. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let it go. No. Um, so some other stuff happens, uh, not really of any importance. Um, Bond discovers that uh, Peter Franks is going to move the diamonds to America. So Bond goes to intercept uh, Peter Franks because he's on his way to meet with Tiffany, who Tiffany thinks Bond is the real Peter Franks. I apologize if you're confused. Uh, but but this leads to what, uh, all joking aside, I think uh, a legitimately great fight scene uh, between Bond and Peter Franks in an elevator. What do you think of this fight? Because I know we, uh, we've championed the train fight. That's the gold standard and From Russia With Love, and this is a very similar close quarters match. Yes, train fight and From Russia With Love, office fight and You Only Live Twice. Yeah. This is, I think this is a great fight for about the first minute or so i feel it goes on a little bit long it starts to get a little bit kind of gimmicky in what they're doing but it's it's pretty good Uh, i do want to talk very briefly about the actor who plays peter franks sure joe robinson who is a performer professional wrestler so apparently he and connery choreographed a lot of this themselves because apparently it was a kind of a later in the shoot decision to make the fight in the elevator as as intricate as it turned out to be and you're right it is it's a really good kind of physical brawl in a tight space with a lot of like yeah you know good trade blows and stuff and breaking glass and things but anyway uh, joe robinson um i don't know how much this we can believe but he was he's a former professional wrestler english actor he claims he actually was offered the role of red grant in From Russia With Love, but he decided not to take it for whatever reason. He's very much in the lineage of Red Grant as that kind of 
bulky blonde hen- henchman. Yeah. Um, he also claims that he was offered to be the gong man uh, for rank distributors. For anyone who watches the old British films, you will have seen the rank film production logo, which is a, a man, a kind of oiled up man hitting a gong. Um, that man apparently could have been Joe Robinson, but he turned them down too. So um, that's an interesting, but by far and away, my favorite piece of trivia, there's two great pieces of trivia that I found out about this man. Firstly, at the age of 70 in South Africa, which this film didn't go to, although they did base part of it in South Africa, Joe Robinson did go to South Africa when he was 70 years old and eight men with baseball bats and knives jumped on him to mug him. Oh, jeez. And he beat the living shit out of them. Good on him. He he beat up four of them and the rest ran away. This 70-year-old man <laughs> beat the crap out of four dudes when there were eight of them and scared off the rest of them. So that's that's pretty good. That's impressive. He was he was along being a professional wrestler, also a martial artist. He taught Lawrence Olivier judo. And apparently once he was asked about Olivier, if he thought Olivier was a homosexual, because apparently back in the day that was the sort of question you asked people. Uh, I don't know why. But anyway, he said he had no idea if Lawrence Olivier was a homosexual, but he did once tell me I have lovely shoulders, Mm. which I think is a a fabulous quote. So um, there you go. Those are my things. I just wanted to stick those in because... There's literally nowhere else in my life that I'm going to be able to talk about Joe Robinson in this context. So I feel like, here we go. So whenever you're watching Peter Frank, just remember that he taught Lawrence Olivier judo, had lovely shoulders, and beat the ever-loving shit out of a bunch of South African muggers when he was an old man. That's right. You just don't mess. That's the way you do it. No, but but Connery but he beats him. Couldn't off. couldn't beat a bored Sean Connery in an elevator. That's for sure. <laughs> That probably a couple like three drinks in. At oh this man, yeah, and they had to keep reshooting this scene because Connery's uh, toupee kept popping off. That's another fun <laughs> bit of trivia for you. <laughs> uh, oh, our man. dashing hero. Anyways, uh, Bond kills Franks uh, and switches his IDs. So Tiffany thinks that a uh, world famous spy James Bond is dead. Which is I love the way he carries weird. a James yeah he carries James Bond business cards that he can swap out. No, I still, he doesn't I, like he doesn't switch his business card. He switches his Playboy Club membership card. That's Playboy. Yes, that's what he puts in his wallet. <laughs> I love the concept that the world's most famous super spy, which makes no sense unto itself, yeah. also carries around physical ID that you know identifies him as such. Uh, but anyhow, that's kind of a thing that has never made any sense in the James Bond series. Yeah, so uh, Bond gets the diamonds. He puts them in Peter Franks' body. He ships the body to Los Angeles where he lands. He meets uh, Felix Leiter, uh, who we haven't seen in a bit. Uh, in a bit. Another another movie, another actor playing Felix Leiter. Another actor. I uh, did not write down his name. I think it's something like Norman Burton, but it did. It is Norman Burton, yes. Excellent. Oh, that was from, that was from the Dome, sir. Uh, oh, that's... Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this is uh, – and the reason I had a hard time remembering is because this guy is not a very memorable Felix Leiter. I mean, he looks like just a very uh, interchangeable he, white guy. He's kind suit. of – he is, he is and he isn't. I feel I'm always going to remember this Felix Leiter a little bit because if Sean Connery showed up and doesn't really look like James Bond, you know, it's like <laughs> credible. Felix Leiter, his top CIA operative, again, just looks like someone's dad just showed up. He's like, he's older, 
little, you know, a little doughy around the midsection just sort of shows up like, oh, James, you know, you're making a mess again. And, like, I guess Felix Leiter's not necessarily an action hero, but he just kind of looks like... Like, really, you could stick a sheriff's hat in him and throw him into the Dukes of Hazard, and he would look That's completely... Right. He'd look completely at home there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, in a way, he, he he's memorable to me because he just doesn't look like a CIA operative for top-level international espionage. No, this is a very... You bring up a good point. This is a very... This is like a Bond film for dads, and if our... Yeah, this, our, is, this is like... Yeah, it's like the Wild Bunch, but the, the tame Wild... The tame... <laughs> the Mild wild Bunch. bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the we oh. used to be wild bunch. Yeah, this is uh, this is that going in style movie from last. Uh, I don't even know why I brought that up, <laughs> but uh, if uh, if our friend is- uh, Sean Glennis, if you're still listening, and I hope you are, this is a, a movie I would highly recommend to you personally. Yeah, this this is like the wild hogs of the James Bond series. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, alright, so Bond is escorted to Vegas by a hearse filled with gangsters. One of the gangsters is played, uh, in a Before You Were Famous segment. He's played by a young Sid Haig. Uh, yeah, which unrecognizable with cool. all that hair, but, uh, I've only known him to be a baldman. So, uh, Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because uh, Sid Haig had, uh, he'd already had a couple of big roles. He'd already been in Jack Hill's Spire Baby and Pit Stop, which, mm-hmm. if you've never seen those movies, those are great movies. I, have I highly a, recommend them. I have a, yeah, I have a copy of Pit Stop I need to get to after you, your recommendation from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, so I, uh, I should probably watch yeah. that soon. So, really, really, like, Sid Haig was, but he was playing leading roles in these underground movies, and then in between that, he was doing roles on TV and these, like, I don't, he doesn't even say anything, if I recall. I don't remember if he even has a line of dialogue in this. That seemed to be mostly Sid Hayes' roles in movies. So he was like, he was leading or co-leading underground movies. And then in the big budget stuff, he was just some dude carrying something in a scene. Yeah, he's here just to be kind of like, the, he's the dumb muscle guy in the in the group. Uh, but, uh, alright, so Bond goes to Vegas, and that's where the rest of the film is largely set um, the, through another series of complicated machinations, the bond, the body of Peter Franks is brought to a, uh, funeral home where the body is cremated and the diamonds are extracted from the ashes and given to bond. Bond is to leave the ashes in an empty plot for ashes and he gets a, a paid exchange. And that was supposed to be what Peter Franks would do. Unfortunately, Mr. Kidd and Mr. Went intercept Bond, and they throw him into a slow-moving and slow-burning coffin <laughs> to try to cremate him that, alive. Yes. Um, and I've just got to say, this is another example. It's, it feels like it's, it's a developing thing, particularly from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but also even prior to that in uh, You Only Live Twice. James Bond needs to watch his six. He gets donkey punched so many times that people just wail on the back of his head when he's, he turns his back on them. Um, and it happens again, he's like, he's putting the stuff in, and Mr. Kid and Mr. Wind just, like, just knock the shit out of the oh, back yeah. of his head. Oh, yeah, smacked in and the head of an empty urn, I think. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that stuff is gonna, that's gonna leave damage, honestly. He's gonna have some, some issues later on. But anyway, like, I just feel like if you're a spy, you should probably be in the habit of, like, he just, he just walks right past them. They're, they're there already, pretending to hang out at another grave. But yeah. I feel like, you know, you know, be observant, dude, but no, he just, he's... 
No. So, so now here's a weird, very cavalier attitude Bond has to almost being burned alive. He's in a he's in a coffin. He's in the middle of the the cremation furnace, and he's the outside of the box is completely engulfed in flames. But it's so airtight that only a little wisp of smoke gets inside before Bond is pulled out at the last minute when the diamonds are discovered to be fake. And Bond does not act like he was just about to be roasted alive. He's just like, oh, uh, thank you, good chaps. Have a good day. <laughs> yeah. He leaves. It's definitely, it's definitely worth noting Bond was screwed. He did not have an exit strategy there. Yeah. So just, well, they pulled him out. And that and it's one of those things that, like, he was saved purely because the other people wanted their money. So um, there we go. That's the almighty dollar. Save James Bond's ass one more time. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so Bond gets away, he heads to a casino, uh, there he meets, um, looking through my notes here, there's a lot of, uh, okay, so Bond is trying to track down the whereabouts of the real diamonds, he goes to the casino, there he meets, uh, our second Bond girl of the film, Plenty O'Toole, played by... That is her actual name? Yeah, named after her father, he supposes, played by Lana <laughs> Wood, sister of Natalie Wood. And, yes, indeed. Yeah, and uh, and uh, do you have any uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, on Plenty O'Toole? Oh God. Um, <laughs> well, uh, honestly, okay. So, so I mentioned the pre-credit sequence where Bond strangles a woman with her bikini top, yeah. trying to extract information from her. Um, that woman actually is worth pointing out is uh, Denise Perrier, who is apparently a Miss World from the fifties. Hmm. So, kind of representing the older women right. a bit. They're not that much older. But yeah, older, like the same age as James Bond, older woman. Um, this uh, I do feel there's there's I feel like Plenty O'Toole is under you. She's bubbly and fun, and she's like pretty much she 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 reminds me of uh, Sylvia Trench, the unsung hero of the James Bond franchise, and that she pretty much comes on to James Bond right out of the gate of like, hey, I'm up for a good time. Let's let's have a good time. I don't yeah. know why she'd pick Sean Connery in his current condition for that, but whatever. That's what they do. Yeah. So she's a good time girl. Looks like she's just up for it. We don't know, you know, what her, you know, her motivations are. But uh, and honestly, her motivations seem to be pretty much that she just wants to you know, hang out and party. Um, and for her unabashed willingness to just have fun, she ends up being thrown naked out of a window. Um, yeah, so and she does, and it does lead to probably the best line of I think the whole movie. Oh, which, I, which I is, agree completely. Yeah, which is she, she's thrown out a window by henchmen who who ambush Bond in the room, and they pick her up and just throw out the window because they don't need her there. And uh, Bond looks out the window when she lands the pool and says, "You know, uh, oh, he's an ex- exceptionally age. fine shot." Yeah, exceptionally fine shot. And the guy just says, "Like I didn't know there was a pool there." <laughs> and it's like a great line of just you know, okay, these guys are uh, pretty bad. Yeah, they but, were um, more. Content with letting a woman splat on the ground, but luckily she yeah. lands safely in a pool, which at that height would have still done some damage. But uh, probably, but probably so. Weirdly that. enough, she's found she within the next time we see her, she's found dead in a different pool. Yeah, uh, in the actual movie, but it does speak a kind of a weird morality clause in it. Like I don't the play the the Bond movies always have this kind of playful, playful misogyny. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's tempered at certain levels. We're kind Pretty of like, mildly, oh, that's yeah. a big. Yeah, it's a bit gross, but you know, whatever. I mean, it is. I mean, these were made; their products are time. Yeah. Whatever doesn't make it okay, but it's what it why is what it is. 
Um, but there does feel in this movie with that opening scene where he strangles the woman, where he like, rips off her bikini top and wraps it around her neck and starts throttling her. And then Plenty O'Toole being, you know, a fun-loving girl just getting chucked out a window, basically. Yeah. It does feel like there's like a mean vein against women running through this. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not like it's a major thing. It's not developed much more. But it is one of the things that I had trouble with adjusting to in the movie is that you know, it just felt it. It felt less funny in this movie than it. You know, in other ones where it's more playful, kind of goofy, like patting a girl in the ass and going like, you know, get out of here, men's business. And it's like yeah. Jesus, that's awful. Oh my god! But you know, it's kind of like it's almost comedically ridiculously awful. This kind of I don't know. It's got a little bit more of a barbed sense to it. It's just something that it kind of you know it it take me off a little bit and then after that i do feel that just plenty of tool is just she's you know she's just not she's barely in the movie as a secondary bond girl like she yeah, shows up she's in the two casino. scenes exactly yeah she she goes up to the room she gets thrown out and then she's later found they don't even they apparently a scene was shot to link it they didn't even include in the final card she ends up being mistaken for um for Tiffany Case and ends up being drowned in a swimming pool and she's like tied over like her weighed way down at the feet and left to drown in a swimming pool. Weirdly enough, that house that that's at and that swimming pool is Kirk Douglas's. Not yeah. in the film, but in in real life, it's Kirk Douglas's house. I through some weird series of events, someone knew someone and uh, that's where that is. So if you want to see Kirk Douglas's house circa 1971. Um, found your movie pretty much as far as I know this is the best movie uh, to fit that criteria but yeah I, I think like the, the Bond girls are Tiffany Case is a little interesting because she's a little bit more capable I mean she's set up as an independent businesswoman. she's fencing illegal goods and kind of yeah. kind of can take care of herself but then gets in over her head um, but Plenty O'Toole is I, she's a little disappointing and also her name is Plenty O'Toole yeah. which is a very a very bad name um, she's also, I have to say, um, I feel like the, the, the sex element is like amped up a lot here. Like she's really fallen out of that dress, uh, when they, when she first shows up. Oh yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, co- that's cool, but it's just, it seems like a noticeable amping up to, um, to previous Bond installations. I know Lana would have just, she'd just done a Playboy shoot prior to this. That's actually, I think what got her the role or got her the notice to do this. So I guess they were they were trading off of that. She was already known for Playboy. Um, so yeah, it, it just, and again, it just feels like all of these things cater back towards it being a very America-centric or America-friendly James Bond film. It's kind of buxom, fun American girls in Las Vegas, the city of sin. You know, it, it kind of, it plays very, uh, very carefully or very easily to kind of American adventure movie mores. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, all good points. But, you know, like I said, you kind of have these films. Yeah, it, it is problematic to discuss. And especially when you have a film like Diamonds Are Forever, which is campy and frivolous, but then it does go to these dark places. It is it is yeah. sort of uh, tonally jarring. Um, it, but, yeah, it's a little weird. I also, something I read, and I, I didn't realize, that apparently Lana Wood was dubbed in this movie. I don't know by who. I don't know if it was Nikki Van Der Zyl or our usual person, but I... I I read somewhere that she was dubbed. I couldn't find confirmation. I couldn't make, find the name of an actress, and I didn't notice it 
while watching it that it looked out of place. But that's weird because she grew up in the U.S. I know she was a Russian immigrant originally, mm-hmm. but she pretty much grew up in the U.S., so I'm pretty sure she had perfect English. Yeah. So I don't know why that happened, but anyhow. I haven't heard, yeah. And like, and we, we're at the point in Bond films now where all the uh, the women get to use their own uh, voice. They're not uh, <laughs> no longer dubbed by Nikki Vanderzil. Amazing, we've graduated yeah. to women being able to speak. So remarkable. Yeah. So here's here's my argument for the film. It happens in the very next sequence. Uh, Bond, his sleuthing eventually takes him to a uh, some scientific lab, which is underground, where they're conducting various tests and experiments. He spies. There is this satellite that is being worked on, which comes into play later. But in this lab, they're also uh, restaging uh, the moon landing. And this is <laughs> yes, they are. This is my this is my this is my single one of my single favorite things in the whole entire James Bond universe. Bond is uh, on this. He breaks onto the set where there's the moon landing. The people who are directing the moon. There's so we see like there's uh, like rocks and it looks like the moon. All right, there's two astronauts in full suits. They're moving very slowly. They're planting flags and Bond breaks onto the suit. The directors of the set. Notice that Bond's on on the set, and they're like, "Hey, stop that guy!" Bond runs across the set, and the astronauts continue to act in character as they try to nap. Yes, it's even low gravity, and they can't move. <laughs> bounce. It's a bit. I mean, method act. One of them was probably Marlon Brown. Oh my god! Yeah, well, the suit wasn't big enough, but uh, uh, maybe. I, well, Here's I, another. Actually, a weird, a weird aside about the move landing. Something that I think is kind of weird. The special effects in this movie was done by two guys, Leslie Hillman and Whitney McMahon, who don't have extensive uh, credits on IMDb for special effects. But one thing that Les Hillman does have is that he is credited with doing art design for the moon construction scenes of 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> so um, I feel this was very much in his wheelhouse. And of course kicks back to Kubrick, who reputedly filmed the moon landing footage, and which is obviously what they're evoking is the conspiracy theory that the moon landing was actually shot in a desert in Nevada somewhere by you know, by uh, a movie crew on Earth to make it look because they didn't get the right, they didn't go to the moon, or they didn't film it right, which, depending on who you talk to today, there are still people who genuinely believe that, and that's, you know, whatever. At this stage, that's one of the lower-grade conspiracy theories people accept, so... Yeah. Whatever. And, and uh, let me, I, I mean, but yeah, the, the this is where I, I think, you you know, you can call this film campy. campy. I think it's legitimately a, a, a genuine comedy at times, and this astronaut scene seals the deal for me, because that is not something you would see in any other Bond film. I, I beg of you, listeners, pause this podcast... Google diamonds are forever astronaut scene and watch the clip and then and then we'll, we'll here we'll wait. Wait, sure. All right, and so then, so uh, here we, uh, here we are. You've you've just watched the scene and your life has been changed forever. Remarkable. <laughs> and now he gets in a moon buggy and, and then yes, away. naturally, Bond hijacks a moon buggy. This leads through a chase in the desert. Uh, luckily, he escapes. 
Um, but this he escapes, the, he, but but not before like using a little motorized tricycle to bounce around as well. Like I also like apparently the moon buggy was it was a real constructed vehicle yeah. that could actually do like forty miles an hour, but it had fiberglass wheels that kept falling off. And I didn't notice it, but I read somewhere on one of the goofs that if you look really closely in one of the scenes, um, you can actually see one of the wheels lying in one of the shots or something like that fell off at some point. Uh, apparently there were a lot the moon buggy they they, they went to great efforts to put that in there. Apparently it was not a good prop. Uh, so enjoy that scene when it's happening. Yeah, but no, hey, it looks great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, this leads to a chase through the streets of Las Vegas down the strip where Bond is in a, uh, I don't know what kind of, he's in a red car. That's what kind of car he's in. I believe, in the I, believe it's a, I believe it's a Ford Mustang Mach 1. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> because because I read on the internet that mm. Ford insisted that he be shown driving one of those because Ford supplied all of the cars for the vehicle or for the movie and trashed a lot of Ford cars. So there there was stipulation was that James Bond had to be seen driving the antithesis of an Aston Martin. I feel in a Mustang, um, but again it caters back to Bullet and the American friendly kind of. Uh, the, the feel of this movie it's a very you know kind of it's a good car chase honestly it's a pretty good scene it is good um, you can tell there's a on the exterior shots of the driving you can tell there's just hundreds of extras standing on the sidewalk watching <laughs> watching everyone film a bond movie which is kind of fun to look out for uh there is a huge goof though in the car chase that yes. they realized during shooting so they tried this is their half-assed way of fixing it uh at one point bond drives down a narrow alleyway to escape a cop uh, unfortunately, it's too narrow for the car to fit, so what he does is he drives the car uh, half up a ramp so that he's now driving on two wheels, and then when he comes out of the alley, he's on the opposite two yeah. wheels. <laughs> so it cuts to an insert shot of Connery just leaning over to flip the whole car from one set of wheels to another. <laughs> like, he can do that on his own. Just he, was, he is carrying a few extra pounds in this movie. Maybe He does maybe have Tiffany in the front seat, yeah. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, considering the whole reason he's on two wheels is because the alley isn't wide enough to have the car on all four wheels. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty big goof, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I just want to mention as well, uh, he, he goes, he drives into a car lot and he chases, they go around in circles with police cars. He escapes after all the police cars are crashing by driving a ramp out. Apparently that one scene was done by uh, Bill Hickman, who actually was one of the stunt drivers in Bullet. And he was brought in mm. because the stunt driver they had goofed the first two attempts. They had three cars to do it. He goofed the first two and trashed two cars. He had one car left to do that ramp jump. Um, and they weren't confident he could do it, so they called in the expert, Bill Hickman, to do it. Uh, and he, he did it in one take. Because yeah. apparently he's the man you need when you want to drive a car over a ramp to get out of a parking lot. But, you know, again, just cements the, the kind of pedigree of the car chases in this. Yeah, and that's the thing too. Like when when whenever there's like a specialized skill somebody needs to have in a Bond film, they always look and call out the best person in the world to come and perform it. Uh, like there's a an, I'm just jumping several films ahead. There's a magnificent chase scene capped off by a terrific stunt in The Man with the Golden Gun, where they brought this guy in to uh, design with a computer how the stunt will work, and then he performed it and did it in one take where the car corkscrews over a ravine and lands on all its wheels. It's, it's really good. So we'll be on the lookout for that. 
Yes, uh, and of course they hired Grace Jones to play Grace Jones when required of, later of on, too. Of course, which is yeah. <laughs> very important. Yeah, so, uh, all right, back to uh, the greatest where, where were film. We? <laughs> where were we, indeed? Um, at this point, Bond breaks into the... He's staying at the uh, the White Hotel, uh, Willard White, who has since gone missing. Uh, Bond believes that he's up to something. He breaks into his penthouse and discovers that, oh, lo and behold, it's Blofeld who's behind the scheme all along. Yeah, it's worth mentioning. I like I like this scene. I think it's it's probably maybe one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie. To break into the penthouse, he gets yeah. on top of an exterior elevator, so he's like on top of the elevator as it's going up, like on the outside. So the people are talking in the elevator, but he's hitching a ride along to the penthouse without them knowing it. And then he has a grappling gun that he uses to get across. It's kind of a neat little like it's yeah. It's one of the it's one of the more like really probably the best scene I think in the whole movie of you know actual spy stuff rather than just you know rough and tumble fighting or whatever you know it's like this is you know your great adventurous spy in, in the middle of something with specialized equipment although it is funny that he hitches a ride on the elevator and then in the top he's not quite sure if it's going to stop and he's like oh crap i'm gonna die i'm gonna he's get like, crushed up here he's like oh, he's i didn't think this through panic. yeah yeah this moment of panic and it's like maybe you should yeah you should did you not think that through but it turns out okay spoiler alert uh, james bond is okay and yeah he yeah. gets in and he finds blofeld he finds blofeld and a clone of blofeld <laughs> and 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 a clone of uh, Blofeld's cat too, uh, which is uh, interesting. Um, Bond uh, uses. Does the cat get plastic surgery as well? Is that what happens? Like, oh, I think they don't go into that. I, I want I want to see an outtake of this where they put the cats in big clay vats <laughs> to make them, and then they plastic surgery the cats so they look the same. Here's what, well, here's what I like about this because uh, Bond still has his little grappling hook gun. He fires it into the head of one of the Blofelds. Kills the the duplicate, and the real Blofeld is still alive. And after the cloned Blofeld dies, his cat leaves the room, and the real Blofeld cat kind of, like, swipes at it like an imposter, which I thought was a nice little touch. It's pretty good. And then Bond, of course, says, the wrong pussy. Wrong pussy, that's right. Which is an excellent thing to say after shooting a man in the head. That's right. Wrong pussy. (laughs) All right. So uh, Bond is now, he's held at gunpoint at Blofeld's mercy, but instead Blofeld sends him down an elevator where he's drugged and then taken out into the desert by Mr. Went and Mr. Kid, where they put him in a pipe so that the pipe can be laid underground and buried. This makes no sense. (laughs) As your tone suggested. uh, But it doesn't make any sense because there's no reason for him to die in this scenario. Uh, there's a robot that comes along welding the pipe, and he manages to evade that because that's like I don't think you die yeah. from that anyway. You might get injured from it. Well, he, he and now functions else in to get out of the pipe. Yeah, well, yeah, he breaks the robot, but like even then, like it's it's spinning around welding thing, but that's only at the tip. I feel like if you were to like, it's not a it's not a killer robot. It's not that scary a thing. And then he escapes from the pipe and, you know, jovially cracks a joke as he gets out while two repairmen are like, why is there a man in this pipe? But yeah, it does. It, it makes no sense. And it does bring maybe my issue with this movie is that, okay, there's been lax plotting in Bond films, but I feel like the, the evolution of Blofeld, it really falls apart here. Um, and it's yeah. not, like, honestly, I don't think... Um, that uh, Charles Gray is a bad Blofeld as an actor. Like I've, we discussed previously in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I kind of prefer the concept of, like, I kind of prefer the Donald Pleasance Blofeld, like the the brain, the kind of, he's, he's kind of a, 
almost a decrepit body, but he's such a brilliant mind. He operates everyone like on a chessboard. You know, he's yeah. Uh, they, you know, I kind of like that idea of Blofeld. And then Honor Majesty's service brought in Telly Savalas, who is a much more physical, you know, kind of present. Yeah, he's a brute uh, villain. You know, yeah, and, and he's he, he's the first, you know, to chase Bond and fight with him, etc. Charles Gray feels like he's kind of somewhere in the middle. He's kind of like a stocky guy, but he's he, you know, he's kind of big. Um, he doesn't really do any action stuff so much throughout this movie. But really, what he does in this movie is he doesn't he doesn't do the brain stuff right either. Like he's just this really haphazard. Like he's not the great schemer of the early films. He's like this haphazard sort of. His his plan involves by he kidnaps William White or Willard White, White, Willard White rather, yeah. who's, who's who's kind of a Howard Hughes uh, surrogate, um, like a reclusive millionaire, and he's able to kidnap him because no one he's so reclusive, no one would ever see him anyway, so no one knows he's kidnapped. Um, and he buys up legitimate property. He, he takes over Willard White's thing, and he's he develops this. It's confusing enough he develops a technology that involves, uh, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but he develops a satellite that can shoot lasers to destroy anything in the world. And then he threatens the world with nuclear disarmament, which honestly um, is not the worst, that's not the, the worst fear I've ever been. Oh my god, what if an evil madman got rid of all of the nuclear weapons in the world? What a terrible thing for him to do. But like his his plots are... Dude, they just he's not like the great plotter of like Donald Pleasance or even Telly Savalas. Like in the previous film he was dealing in mind control. He was I don't know there were we, we discussed plot holes, but like he was still he's brainwashing these women in this super weird modern chic thing up on the top of a mountain. And here's just some dude sitting in like a big penthouse suite in Las Vegas talking about how he's like, I just got a bunch of money and I'm gonna buy some stuff. It's just, I, I don't know, he just, it doesn't work. And then he, like, he captures Bond, and he could just kill Bond. And instead he puts him in a pipe with no major threat. Yeah. It, just, you know, just, it, I don't know, just, just, just let, let, stay there and die, basically, is yeah, what he's hoping. like, like, oh, hopefully you'll just be allergic to pipes. You know, it just, like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it just felt, to me, it, campness aside, it's just Blofeld felt very toothless here. He didn't feel like a... You know, and again, we're coming off the back of, like, Blofeld killed Bond's wife. And if yeah. we're not going to harp on that, and the movie doesn't harp on it. They don't no. even, they don't no. mention her at all. Okay, we don't harp on him, but it's still, like, he's Bond's main adversary. And he's just sort of a a goofy kind of dude. You know, he's, he's just not that threatening to me. And I feel it's it's a, and I, again, I, like I say, I don't think Charles Gray does anything wrong with it. Like, he, I think he's, he's a... He, he, he handles what he's given pretty well, but like his decisions throughout just don't make a lot of sense. And then it's like his idea is, by the end of it, he, you know, he, he ends up in a stationary object threatening the entire world, but the world knows where he is, and they can just send missiles to blow him up. Yeah, well, yeah. It just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I feel like, you know, the underground layer of You Only Live Twice... Like, it just, it doesn't, it lacks that, as camp as this movie is, it's a lot more kind of straightforward and boring in some of those elements. Yeah, I agree. I think Charles Henderson, uh, easily the weakest and least memorable of the Blofelds, and and for all the reasons that you mentioned, uh, I still enjoy him in this movie, though. Uh, I think, I don't think, uh, I honestly, the way I love Diamonds Are Forever, I don't think Telly Savalas or Donald Pleasance would work at all in this movie. It would elevate it to some other unusual level I'm not sure I can handle. 
But, um, yeah, he, he's, uh, I call him Charles Henderson. Charles Gray, that's his name. He's, Charles Gray, yes. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, and, and again, his plot, and also, this, this brings the diamonds back into the, in the play, because he's using the diamonds to power the satellite that is firing lasers at nuclear, right. nuclear bombs on Earth with these really, really, uh, crappy looking optical effects. <laughs> Which again makes no sense because he's kidnapped a multi-billionaire's uh, fortune so he could just buy diamonds. Yeah, so... Rather than a massive rigmarole to smuggle them out through a series of unlikely misadventures. So Bond tracks down Willard White, played by Jimmy Dean of Jimmy Dean Sausage. He's being held... Yes, indeed. He's being held at One a... only. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Dean. <laughs> I'm Willard White. Willard White speaking. Uh, oh, oh! by the way, before we uh, get further, uh, Blofeld's been using a voice machine to disguise his voice to sound like <laughs> Willard White. I can't believe we lost over oh, that. that. That is pretty good, yeah. yes. Because um, that's Charles Gray, the fantastic English stage actor, speaking with a twangy American country accent. Yeah. Poorly dubbed, you know, like, they, it's obviously they just overlaid uh, Jimmy Dean's voice. Uh, just a point on Jimmy Dean. I don't have a lot to say about him in here, but I did find out, yes, he's, he founded Jimmy Dean Sausages. I was two years old at this time. I think it was founded in 1969. Primarily a country music singer. That's where he made his name. Um, a little bit leery of playing Howard Hughes or a Howard Hughes type because he was actually employed by Howard Hughes at the time and was playing at his casinos. But my favorite thing I've learned about Jimmy Dean from researching for this is that he is entombed when he died in a nine-foot-tall piano-shaped mausoleum with the epigraph, Here Lies One Hell of a Man, which honestly makes him more Bond than probably anyone in this movie as far as I would say like that's more Blofeld than anything Blofeld gets to do here yeah that uh yeah and and Willard White is uh he's being guarded by a pair of uh henchmen Bambi and Thumper uh two uh, deadly gymnast assassins <laughs> I don't know who how- named themselves Bambi and Thumper it's like we trained for years to become deadly in the martial arts so what should we name ourselves? How about that kids film with the the cute rabbit? Yeah. Yep, sounds good to me. So they uh, and also yeah. I don't understand. Okay, so they beat the living piss out of James Bond, all right? He's he's helpless. They beat the crap out of him. And then they throw him in a swimming pool, and then they dive into the swimming pool after him. And then somehow James Bond comes out on top. Like, he somehow is like, could they not swim? Is that what happened? Like, but they jumped in after? I don't understand why he won this fight, because yeah. he wasn't holding his own before that. And then suddenly he's like, aha, I've defeated these two women in a pool of water. Yeah, and the way that he overpowers them is really comical, because they're they're both in the water, and they each are holding him under the water, and then you just sort of see Bond's arms comically rise up behind their heads <laughs> like like some kind of Michael Myers thing. And he grabs both of them and then holds... He, as one man, is able to hold two women under the water uh, right before the CIA get there. But uh, Two women who were beating who the were, yeah, out of him. Who could have torn him to pieces when they weren't busy making awkward poses on the ground. I don't... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, don't, I don't quite get it. But yeah. it is worth noting Thumper, uh, played by Trina Parks, who had a a few acting roles, um, is, I think, officially the first African-American Bond girl. I mean, Bond, is she, her and Bambi are kind of like, they're, they're lesser Bond girls in a sense. Yeah. They don't think they have any, they have dialogue, but they're kind of, they, right. they have that one fight scene and then they disappear. Um, I don't know, did James Bond drown? He doesn't even drown them, I'm 
pretty sure they're still alive at the end of that. No, no, he doesn't. Think he him. doesn't drown them because they eventually give up and they tell because uh, uh, right. Thumper points out where to find uh, Willard White. So they they free Willard White uh, and then they discover uh, Blofeld's base of operations is this. Uh, uh, I don't even know what like a oil refinery. It's an oil platform. rig. Yeah, yeah, an oil rig, and yeah, he's operating out of Baja. Uh, so Bond sneaks onto the rig in Baja by using a giant inflatable silver ball that he walks across the water with, which is actually kind of something I would like to do. Um, I don't know about you, but yeah, I, it, look, it, it looks pretty it's cool. Kind of fun, uh, it's not really sneaking. He he just shows up there, right. and they're like, wait for him. And it's like, oh, good, you've shown up. Cool, because obviously you didn't die in the large pipe we left you in uh, with several with, with exits at, you know, uh, measured distances along the pipe because that's how you make them uh so you know i guess they were expecting him but yeah he shows up for that and then what my favorite thing about this whole scene and again it speaks to this kind of goofy plotting and uh, the aiming for this whole thing is based on a cassette tape fair enough it's old technology yeah. cassette tapes used to be how you store data but bond comes with a cassette tape with anti programming like ba- literally just like the computer virus from independence day <laughs> which they had no way of knowing how what technology blowfeld was using to power the satellite they didn't build the satellite they don't know anything about it but soon they're able to provide a counter tape for bond to swap out with the real tape uh, which is disguised as a, a cassette of marching music for some, for some reason. And Bond recognizes this and realizes that must be why he's using a tape, because Blofeld would never listen to marching music. Yeah. Which is the weirdest thing to harp on. They have a conversation about that in the movie briefly, and it's like, really? I, do, I feel like this would have been even easier if you just not said anything at all. Yeah, and Blofeld shows Bond the giant supercomputer that he's operating the satellite out of. And this is, a, this is this is my, another one of my favorite little uh, Connery not caring performance touches where he he walks up to the the slot where the tape is that's operating the satellite is in and he says ah and how do you eject it do you just push this button here and he pushes the button the tape spits out and the look on Connery's face is so it's he's just so shameless like oh look what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, this is this is playful Bond. Yeah, uh, he switches the tapes, uh, and then he hides the real tape in uh, Tiffany Case's bikini bottoms. Uh, she's oh yeah. By the way, Tiffany Case is just sort of there lounging on the the rig in her bikini around all these uh, men yes, she working seems hard. To have, she yeah, she seems to have switched sides, but it turns out she's actually still on on Bond's side. Yeah. I did like the fact that she then, she accidentally misinterprets what Bond has done and switches back. She didn't realize Bond switched the tape, so she switches it back. That I thought was a, was a, a fun little device. Yes, she switches the tapes, but Bond is still able to with the use of a weather, weather balloon, he's able to alert the CIA. This leads to a giant uh, explosion filled yeah. shootout on the rig. Which I enjoy because literally it leads to the CIA storming uh, the play, the oil rig with helicopters with missiles blowing everything up, and basically that breaks the satellite because there's no one to control it. Yeah. Which makes me wonder why they didn't just do that to begin with. Like if you kill everyone in the oil rig, the satellite, who's going to control the satellite? <laughs> Again, it just speaks to kind of like, it's a pretty glaring plot hole uh, as far as I'm concerned, but sure, why not? Yeah, so I, again, I don't, this doesn't make any sense and I love it, but uh, Bond is, Bond <laughs> goes to the oil rig unarmed except for with a duplicate tape, which he, he hides in the shoulder of his uh, his suit jacket, which they tear out of, 
And then after Bond has shown that he can switch the tape, they, instead of just, you know, dumping his body overboard or shooting him, they lock him in the maintenance closet. Like, you've had the ma- Bond so many times to kill Bond yes. in this movie. They lock, him in, they lock him in the maintenance closet with a hole in the bottom of it to have ex- access to the exterior. This is like the equivalent of that episode of the A-Team where they lock the A-Team in, like, a weapons facility. I remember as I'm watching the A-Team as a kid, like, every time, every week, they'd, like, lock them somewhere stupid and they'd be able to build, like, an armored, like, they'd be able to armor a bus and escape or whatever, you know, and they had that DIY montage in every episode. There was one episode where they were so lazy, they just locked the A-Team in a weapon storage warehouse. Yeah. And it's like, that's, you're not even trying anymore, are you, dude? So, like, literally, you, lock, you locked them in a place with a bazooka. Well done. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Bond operates. He, Blofeld tries to escape in a little mini one-person submarine, but Bond grabs it with a crane and just starts sort of lazily smashing it around into things. Uh, we don't even really get a proper op, uh, on- or off-screen death for Blofeld. We're just left to assume that he perishes in, in the in the yes, chaos. Yes, w- there was meant to be a different finale. It was supposed to end with, with Blofeld escaping in the submarine and... Bond chasing him on boats and they would end up in a salt mine and they would have a big fist fight and eventually Blofeld was going to get pushed into a salt granulator or whatever the hell that is and then uh, that was what was meant to happen but that was abandoned through it being too expensive and costly to put together so it ended up as you say it's kind of a kind of a disappointing Blofeld is the main villain and it's sort of he's he's left to die off screen with the assumption of course that he wasn't really dead but Blofeld doesn't come back till 2015, so he's pretty much dead at this point because of legal wrangling, obviously. Yeah, uh, if you remember... Which I think we've discussed before. In our Thunderball episode, yeah. Basically, after this episode, the rights to Blofeld and Spectre were uh, lost for uh, nearly 50 years. And then, you know, they were only just recently cleared up, which is why the last Bond film was called Spectre, and they brought him back, um, which uh, we will get to eventually. Uh, well, eventually. I also, I completely, I completely forgot to mention in my, uh, uh, I'm no, this isn't my favorite Blofeld. There's one scene where he's in drag for no reason. He disguises an elderly woman for no reason. He doesn't get out. He's not visible. Yeah. He loads someone else into the back of the car. He's in the car already, just dressed like an old woman. Just like that's just something he does in his spare time. Uh, I know it's not the first time a villain's been in drag. We have the, the, what is the opening scene of Ah, Thunderball? Ah, yeah, Jacques Bouvier. Uh, Which, yes, where he's just going, but that's like a pre-credit sequence. They're supposed to be a little bit goofy, but this is in the main film. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, I mean... So, yeah, it's... Yeah, It's hard to take him that seriously when, again, he's dressed up like a Monty Python character. (laughs) It's not even even good... Yeah, it's not even, like, good drag. It's, like, clearly, like, again, pantomime villain stuff. Yeah, so uh, Bond and Tiffany K save the day. They go to celebrate on a nice cruise ship where they are intercepted by, again, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, who attempt to kill Bond with an ex- do, but, explosive but Bond, Bond Sherry Nerd shows up again. Uh, this is worth noting. This is a film that has two instances of Bond being a little smarmy know-it-all about booze, yeah. uh, which is an established trope of the series at this point. Uh, early in the film, uh, he, he he 
uh, what a, he he knows about a sherry he's given to drink, and he correctly guesses that it's a uh, was originally the from vintage, uh, yeah. the vintage event. And it's eighteen fifty one. It's a fifty one, but it's actually eighteen fifty one. And it's like, oh, that's very good to know because uh, that's what Bond does. And then obviously he he. As you say, Mr. Kid and Mr. Wind show up as waiters bringing room service with an explosive flan or something. It's like literally like it's a, it's a, a cake top, fake hollow cake that they just put over a bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, which is the most ridiculous thing. Like literally Adam West would have fit into this so perfectly. Um, and they bring that in and they start talking about uh, Claret, I believe. And uh, Bond asks him a question because he's suspicious, and the guy's like, "Oh, we're actually we're out of out of the claret." And he's like, "It is a claret. What you have?" And it's like, "Ah, oh, fooled again. Everyone needs to be a sommelier to fool Bond if they want to kill him." But these deaths are pretty good. I will I will give them that. Mister Kid, Mister Wint are ridiculous characters, but they go out in stuff. Oh hell yeah, they do. And it's it's worth noting Bond also recognizes them because uh, when they go out to bury uh, Bond in the pipe, uh, Mister uh, Wince has a he has this perfume bottle that he's been spraying on himself throughout the movie, and it gets crushed and covered in Bond, and uh, he he refers to himself smelling like a quote a tart's handkerchief earlier in the film. Yes. Yes, that's a a very, very sensible handling of this is that he puts the the man wears perfume because he's gay, you see. That's right. (laughs) Very, very (laughs) clever. Jesus But, uh, yeah, so so Mr. Wint begins strangling Bond while Mr. Kid grabs two kebabs, lights him on fire, and slowly starts (laughs) walking over to Bond. As you do As you with do. moments of stress. That's right. And, and like, he, I, I mean, Mr. Wint, Bruce Glover, he's, like, just bug-eyed and crazy this whole movie. Mr. Kid is is hardly doing anything. He's just sort of, he's just sort of there. He's, like, just a, like you mentioned, a sweaty, creepy, weird, awkward dad. Yeah, and, yeah, and, to, be, and to be fair, um, let's see, Mr. Mr. Wint is played by... Uh, Putter Smith. Who? By Putter Smith, who is a jazz, he's a jazz bass player. Yeah. Um, like and a, and a good one. He played with like Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington. Like this dude wasn't messing around. So they just pulled him in for a random role, uh, and that's that's what he's doing. So yeah, he's not an actor, and he certainly he doesn't look like a man built for the silver screen. Um, but he there he is walking with his two flaming kebabs. <laughs> Bond covers him in alcohol. He lights up on fire and is jumps overboard where he uh, uh, dies. And then uh, Tiffany tries to throw the cake at Mr. Wint, misses, and the cake breaks open and reveals the bomb. So Bond grabs the bomb, ties it to Mr. Uh, Wint's coattails, and when he gives him, like, a, a, this weird wedgie, he, like, <laughs> he moans in, like, half pain and half delight. And then oh, Bond throws him overboard and he explodes. Oh, my God. Roll, yes, roll credits, Shirley Bassey. That was Diamonds Are Forever. Oh. Yeah, so he said he cert- he certainly left with his tail between his legs. That's right. That's what you say after you give a man an explosive wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, yeah. Uh, Jack, have your feelings towards this film changed at all? No. Okay. No, they've not. Uh, it just, it's, it's a movie, I can, I can see your point about it being ridiculous. It's just for me, the balance isn't right. It's, it's just, there are definitely some funny moments in it, but it's just... 
I don't know. It's like it's at least it's funnier than Casino Royale. Uh, it's not like it's not a that chore is, to sit that is through, true. Yeah. but it just it just feels unbalanced to me because it has its action sequences. It still has some of the playfulness of Bond, but it's just it the plotting is obtuse to say the least. Uh, I feel like they could have stripped this down if they wanted to make it a really like campy misadventure. Uh, I don't know. It's it's like my least favorite Bond thus far. I think of the official franchise. Not a terrible film, but you know, it, it definitely this feels like uh, like the product of some desperate producers rather than a significant movement forward in the in the franchise's history. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I love it. I don't. I honestly, I don't even think I can say it's the worst of the the official ones we've watched so far. I I genuinely might rank this higher than Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, which you might call crazy, but. Uh, uh, hey, you know that's me. I love I well, love me well, some diamonds I mean, are forever. I'm still I'm still here making the case. I think you only you only live twice. Maybe my favorite James Bond film of the lot. That's so fair. That'll probably, totally win, fair. That'll, that'll probably win me my enemies too. Yeah. So yeah, this definitely it's one. I mean, for James Bond fans, it's different for sure. This is it's not like Absolutely. what came before. Uh, it's a little bit like what came afterwards, I suppose. In some elements, we may be moving into some murky waters here. Uh, but we'll we'll get to those in due course. Yeah, let's uh, let's run some numbers. I got a got a budget here. Um, so this uh, seven point five million dollars to cost. Uh, it ended up grossing forty three million in the U S, uh, which was uh, higher than Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And if you adjust for today, that is a whopping two hundred forty three million dollars. Uh, not bad. Yes. Yeah, that's not bad at all, especially considering that what like a sixth of the budget went to one Scottish dude. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and the rest just went to uh, closing down parts of the Vegas Strip. But uh, pretty, pretty much, yeah. yeah, renting out Vegas. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, and uh, overall, it's uh, grossed one hundred twenty million worldwide, which is approximately seven hundred thirty-seven. That's three quarters of a billion dollars adjusted for inflation. Nice, right, that's Marvel yeah. movie money right there. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. It worked. All right. <laughs> so, okay, so I suppose moving on, let's talk body count, our let's, favorite topic. Let, let's do it. So this one falls somewhere in the middle. Uh, we have a body count of nine people mm. that I counted. Now, there's there's some, I, there, there's a surgeon at the in the pre-credit sequence, Bond switches out, he changes clothes, he steals a surgeon's clothes, the surgeon is shown lying on the floor. Is he dead? Is he unconscious? It's not shown. I'm not counting it. So I come mm-hmm. up with nine in total. Um, and that, that includes Blofeld as well. Blofeld is dead. He kind of reappears unofficially here and there, but as we said, he doesn't really come back officially until 2015, which is like three James Bonds later, four James Bonds later. Um, so yeah, Blofeld dies here. So that's that's our nine people. That brings us to a franchise total of seventy six nice. dead people. Pretty good. That's pretty respectable. Doesn't come close to the record high, which is still with Thunderball, which are twenty one people. Uh, and also, since we've got now two Bonds, I've also tabulated Connery's total, and this is Connery's final official James Bond film, Aeon production. Connery's total is 70. He's killed 70 people. Lazenby only killed six in his single outing as James Bond. So we'll, we'll update those as we go along. We'll see how Roger Moore fares. Can he beat 
Sean Connery seventy. Oh. Uh, I have a. F- we'll we'll see. So it's I possible. Think he does I I think he does honestly, but we'll see. Yeah, he does um, too. S- sex. This is actually uh, pretty uh, pretty refined. Only one. Uh, only one. He he managed more sexual partners in the movie where he fell in love and got married, uh, which is you know. So just the one Tiffany case. Uh, that brings us to 18 women that he slept with in the franchise. In how, what is this, the seventh movie in the series? The uh, Yeah, the seventh official film. Se- seventh official film, 18 women. Uh, that's, he's busy. Um, From Russia with Love remains the horniest James Bond movie with four, four separate women he slept with. Uh, we do break a record here, though, for age differences. Nice. Uh, the age... Age difference between Tiffany Case, uh, Jill St. John, and Sean Connery is only 10 years. That's on the higher end, but not record-breaking. Connery is about 41, Jill St. John about 31. But even though they don't sleep with each other in the movie, uh, I still count it. She's a Bond girl. Plenty O'Toole, Lana Wood, was only 25. And she was definitely gunning for (laughs) Connery in this movie, who was 41. That's 16 years difference. That's our new champion. That beats Miyahama in uh, You Only Live Twice. Uh, they had a 13-year age difference. So this is a new one, 16 years. It's a grand occasion. And it's also worth noting that possibly Sean Connery dated both Tiffany Case, or rather Jill St. John, and Lana Wood during the making of this film, uh, which means that that age difference is that both of those are actually probably kind of real things to take into account. So, um, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Connery really did a lot in this movie. Uh, like, it's not on the screen, but uh, he played golf every morning, gambled all night, caught all the Vegas shows, shot a movie somewhere in between that, and possibly dated both of the actresses. Yeah. So, bloody hell. Um, he's busy. Um, but that's that That gives us our, our running for the, t- for, for the time being. Um so yeah, um, you got anything else to add, Jake? Is there anything we missed? Uh, no. I mean, this is a uh, this is a I guess you can say a, a sort of a polarizing Bond film. Um, the, the people <laughs> is... the people who like it really love it, and people who don't uh, don't. I don't think there's much in between. Although although you seem to fall close to that category, so uh, so kudos to you, Jack. And uh, I'm glad we could have such a spirited discussion on Connery's second of three swan songs. Yes, <laughs> we have such sights ahead of us, don't we? We do. Um, but although "Never Say Never Again" is not official, but uh, he's still it's he's true. still James Bond. Damn it, we're we're gonna count it and watch it. Uh, Absolutely. All right. Well, well, I think that about does it, Jack. Where can the good people find you? Should you wish to be found? Uh, I can be found on Twitter far too often, honestly, uh, at real Jack Eason. Yeah. Getting getting retweeted by uh, Village Voice and pissing off David Ehrlich—that's the way to do it. That's true. God bless me. I'm doing my duty as a film fan. You're a hero. Pissing off that little twist. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that guy. All right. Uh, I can be found at Jake Tropila. J a k e t r o p i l a. You can also hit up our main channel. That's at Optimism Vaccine, or you can tweet at us there, or you can uh, email us at optimismvaccine at gmail dot com. Where do you fall on the uh, Diamonds Are Forever? Are you a fan? Do you love the campiness like I do? You can also follow us on Facebook. Leave us a, leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Uh, yeah, that about does it for us. Tune in next time. Je- for your ears only, we'll return to Live and Let Die. 